What a wonderful time we have had already this morning with scripture reading and prayer and the singing of God's word. And so now we come to the preaching, the exhortation. And so if you will, I want you to take your Bibles this morning. This will be our last time to be in the book of Luke for this year. But turn with me to um, Luke chapter 5 this morning, verse 27 through 32. Luke chapter 5, verse 27 through 32. And we will go ahead and let's, let us read this passage, very well-known passage. It says, After that he, Jesus, went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind and got up and began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and the scribes began grumbling at his disciples saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus answered and he said to them, It is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. May God bless the reading and the preaching of his word this morning. Over the next few weeks, the Gospel of Matthew, along with the Gospel of Luke, will be read thousands of times around the world, if not even more than that, if not 10,000 times as we are moving and inching forward toward Christmas. This morning we come in contact with one of the authors of the birth narrative of Christ. His name is Levi, or best known to us as Matthew. He is one of these, whether his name was changed by Jesus himself, or maybe like the Apostle Paul who changed his own name for certain reasons, Levi eventually will change his name to Matthew. And he is one of the four gospel writers. He, he is the first one that we read. And by some scholars' uh, view, maybe even the first one to uh, first gospel, earliest written gospel. But Matthew's life before Jesus was not one of religious devotion. Matter of fact, as we'll look in this, you may, may wonder, did Matthew even care about religion at all? Was he even concerned with anything other than money and wealth? It seems that that may have been the only thing that he cared about was making money, getting rich, being wealthy, and living his life. Yet when Christ comes across his path and commands, calls him to follow, Matthew does not hesitate. In our sermon today that I've entitled The Messiah and the Tax Collector, we will examine this interaction between Jesus and Matthew And what you will find here this morning is a beautiful example of salvation and the results, the the outward working. We're going to see the inward working, but we're also going to see the outward working as we look at this despised sinner who is transformed into a beloved apostle. And so here's the big idea this morning. The calling of Matthew to be a disciple demonstrates Jesus' mission to call sinners to repentance that they may be transformed. Let me say it again. 
The big idea here is that the calling of Matthew, what Jesus is doing to Matthew, is what he does for all who come to saving grace, come to salvation, is that he calls us. And so this demonstrates the very mission by which Jesus has come, that he may call sinners to repentance, that they may be transformed. And so my hope this morning, FPC, is that as we walk through this, is that you will understand not only the mission of Jesus, that he would call sinners, but you would understand the power of the call to bring a sinner out of his sin, that he may repent. And not only that, that he may repent and begin to follow him. And so my hope is, is that you would hear the call to follow Christ, that you would repent of your sins, be transformed, and live a life of full dedication to Christ himself. And so there are really only two main headings this morning, but there are some subpoints. But two main headings. I want you to notice the Messiah's call and the sinner's response. The Messiah's call and the sinner's response. Let's begin with this first one. Again, read with me again verses 27 and 28. I want you to see this. It says, after that he went out and he noticed the tax collector. After that would be the, what we saw last week where the, the paralyzed man is lowered through the roof. And if you remember that Jesus made this wonderful statement that we had not seen before, that this man's sins are forgiven. So we're carrying this theme over here. Luke's going to carry this over, that Christ can forgive sins. So after that, he went out and he noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he, Matthew, left everything behind, got up and began to follow. Now, Jesus is still in Capernaum. This is one of those events that we get in the Synoptic Gospels. All three Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, okay? So, so we get this, and so there are some details that each one give us that, that maybe some of the others don't. So we, if you read all three, you gain some details. So he's in Capernaum. He's along the seashore of Galilee. For those of you who have been to Israel, you may remember what that looked like, kind of that area in some places around Capernaum. And so somewhere along there, there is a tax booth or a station, it's believed that this is probably um, some kind of trade route intersection. And so this would be a, a place in which Matthew would be able to come and collect the taxes of the fishermen. Of the he's not a chief tax collector. He's kind of more the underling, but yet he's doing rather well for himself. So what do we know about tax collectors? Well, according to Matthew 18, when Jesus is giving us instructions on how to deal with a, an individual who is in unrepentant sin, we learn that tax collectors are considered much to be like Gentiles. They're very similar. They're shunned. They're despised. They're outside the community of faith. So, so that's not a very good name. That's not a very good reputation that we find. And so even Jesus recognizes this, that, 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 this is a, that this is someone who is considered to be outside the people of God. We say, well, why is that? Well, these stations were, were basically Rome's way of farming out tax collection. These stations were lucrative business opportunities. These were, this was a franchise, like a Chick-fil-A franchise, right? Everybody wanted to get their hands on one. So they, could, so they could make some money. It was their way to, to basically take their lifestyle and bring it up to the next level. And so the tax collector had a certain amount that he had to require for wrong, but everything else he was able to keep for himself. So in and of itself, tax collecting is not sinful, but this industry had become corrupted. 
the people had taken advantage. There wasn't as many uh, red tape and different things. And so there wasn't much accountability. As long as Rome got their money, they were fine. And so you were kind of free to do whatever you wanted. And so this became an industry of corruption. Tax collectors or publicans, as they were also known, would steal. They would uh, extort people. If we wanted to really summarize their sin, they were greedy. They wanted more money. How much more? Just a little bit more. Always just a little bit more. They were greedy. But not only this, these were Jews. And so this meant that in order to do this, you had to betray not only your own kin, but your beliefs, and even your own God. Because by being this, you're serving Rome, and therefore that you, you, know, you gain this reputation. And if you are being greedy and you are extorting people, which is what we would seem this is happening here, even with Matthew is that you are seen as this great sinner who's betrayed his people and betrayed his religion. And so these are individuals who were not coming to the temple. They were not coming to, to worship the Lord. They're not worried about tithing. They're not worried about following any of the laws. They're just worried about making a little bit more. And so it's very likely that this may have been the life of Matthew. And so this is who we are introduced to in this moment. That he is a man who is sitting at his station and he is focusing on his work. He is a man who is counting his coins. And that his choices to get to where he is has kept him out of worship and out of the service to the Lord. And beloved, it doesn't seem to bother him. You say, well, why is this? Well, what's interesting is, is that Mark tells us that there's a crowd that Jesus is teaching. And there's a crowd gathering And what do we normally see that when a crowd is gathering, but people running to be a part of the crowd? Matthew is not going to be a part of the crowd. He's not not himself seeking out Christ. He's not concerned with the teaching. He's not concerned with the healing. He is just doing his job, sitting at his station, with no concern for his sin or his lack of worship. But here's what's so amazing. And I think sometimes we kind of maybe miss this word because we want to immediately get up into the the command to follow him. But I want you to take notice of what uh, Luke describes, this interaction. Note Note that it says that Jesus noticed or Jesus saw Matthew. He sees the tax collector. And from that point, he looks at him and he says, follow me. As we're singing the song, as we're singing that forever Jesus, and when I meet his gaze in heaven, I will forever sing my praises. Well, that, that is in heaven, but you can only imagine a tax collector meeting the eyes of Christ on earth. He may want to have divert himself in this moment, but Jesus does not allow that. Because this word noticed, or this word saw in the Greek, does not mean a quick glance. This is not that Jesus walked by and he just saw him and, then he, turned, and he went on about his business. And again, he's teaching, and there's a large crowd. There's a lot going on. The word actually insinuates and means that Jesus gazes intently at Matthew. He's locking eyes with him. He's looking him over. And I don't know about you, but have you ever had somebody just eyeball you? Just look at you and won't quit looking at you, and you just want to tell them, take a picture. Get on. Move on. Jesus ain't having it. He stares at him. But here's the beauty of this text. Is that it comes right after the paralytic. And you remember what happened in that one when Jesus saw the five men, the four friends, and the man on the stretcher? You remember that he saw past their physical 
body, the outward, and he saw into their heart, and he saw their faith. And do you remember that when the Pharisees were grumbling in their heart, they were grumbling in their mind, and they were thinking all these things that Jesus looked at them, and what did he see? He saw them grumbling. He saw their unbelief. Beloved, we know that when Jesus gazes intently at somebody, that he sees more than what our eyes see. He is looking at Matthew and he sees the faith or the lack of faith of the individual. He sees the thoughts. He sees the desires. He sees the sins of his past. He sees the sins of his present. And my goodness, he sees the sins of his future. He's God. And he is eyeballing Matthew and he sees it all. Would this not make you blush? That the God of heaven would look into your heart, into your soul, and to see your sin, and he doesn't turn away, but looks even harder. He sees the truth of Matthew. And there is nothing in our text that indicates that Matthew is some good guy. There's nothing in this text that would say that Jesus looked into the heart of Matthew and just said, oh, you're a great guy, come with me. We'd see that nowhere. Instead, we know that when Christ looks into us, he sees the sinfulness of man. He sees a heart that is corrupted. He sees a heart that has been tainted with sin. And so he looks at Matthew. And even after he sees him, even after he sees, sees the truth, he says to Matthew, follow me. Not a question. Will you follow me? Not an opinion, not an option. Beloved, this is a command. Matthew, follow me. That means to walk the same road. That means to follow him and be like him, to be like him in, in, in thought, in word, in deed. And this is shocking because if you, were to have a, if you were to have a tax collector, you know, with your group, if you were to have a tax collector write your gospel, right? You would be scorned. There would be no different than having a prostitute. This would be no different in our day of having homosexual Somebody who had the lifestyle, the previous lifestyle of homosexuality or something along that, some vile sin. This is nothing like having someone who has betrayed their country, betrayed their people. And you look to someone who is scorned and you say, come follow me. Be a part of my group. Be a part of my family and my people. Does this not speak of our Savior's great compassion? Does this not speak of one who knew more about Matthew's sin than what even the public knew and what even we ourselves can know? And yet he looks to Matthew and he calls Matthew to himself, to his side, to be one of his. He did not allow Matthew's sin, his reputation, to hinder calling him as a disciple. Praise be to God for every one of us in here today that God did not allow your sin to stop him from calling you. Amen? He called him into his family. And does this not teach us that there is no sinner that is so vile, that there is no sinner who has committed so much, too many sins, or, or one really bad sin that Christ cannot call and Christ will not call to himself? Oh, how we should rejoice. 
No wonder when we see his gaze in heaven, I will not turn away, but I will sing even more louder. I will sing all of my life. Because even though you gazed into my heart and you saw the wickedness, you still called me out of it. Oh, beloved, we rejoice this morning that there is no sin or no sin beyond the forgiveness of Jesus. And are there not some vile sins today? Man, as I was telling my wife about this, she said, you need to be very careful. We have little ears in this building. And we have people who are not so young and little who still blush at some of the sins that we are witnessing before our very eyes, aren't we? The sin of murder and violence. This new wave of this transgenderism and homosexuality and the sin of abortion. And we are seeing all kinds of sexual sins. Did we not read in Sunday school this morning of vile sin? I know the Sunday school book said that Judah and Tamar is like a soap opera. I think it's like a two-hour marathon or a, of Jerry Springer. That is a horrible, sinful act and stuff going on in there, isn't it? And we wonder why Tamar is in the lineage of Christ. Why Judah is in the lineage of Christ. Because Christ forgives sins. Oh, beloved, what hope we have for the sinner today in this text. For there is not one of us who is beyond the forgiveness of sin. And so you ask, you say, well, how in the world? How can such a just and holy and righteous God forgive such vile sin? Oh, brother, I'm glad you asked. Oh, sister, I'm glad you're pondering that. Because we know through the gospel, through the good news of Jesus Christ, that by the life and the death and the resurrection of Christ, that all sins, not some sins, that all sins, no matter how many or how vile they are, cannot stand against the power of the grace and the mercy of Jesus Christ. That they cannot stand against the authority of the Word of God who looks and says, your sins are forgiven. We know that Jesus Christ, who did not sin and who was innocent by, in, in all accounts, in thought, in word, in deed, went to the cross of Calvary and died for our sins and laid his life down for the most wicked of people. Even the people who had betrayed their own and betrayed their religion and betrayed their God. He went to the cross and he died and he rose from the grave and all power that all of these sins for all who would repent and believe in Christ that all who would come would find that all of their sins can be forgiven in him it is by the life and the death and the resurrection that he has the authority on heaven and earth to forgive sin and so that you need to know this morning there is no sin that is beyond the power of Christ and so I must ask you are you in need of having your sins forgiven this morning Maybe you are one of those that you are listening to this and you're just thinking, but Brother Brian, you do not know how vile I am being right now. There are secret things in my life you do not know. And I would rather stay in that sin than come out and deal with it publicly. Dear friend, you do not know the power and the glory of God's forgiveness. Come out of that sin. You say, but you don't know about my past. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know what all has happened be, be encouraged, dear friend, that Jesus, 
that in his great gospel, in his grace and his mercy, you can find forgiveness this morning. But I must also point out something very interesting here that I love. And I do believe this is a great encouragement to our heart. We must also point out the power of the call. The power of Jesus' effectual call that when he looks at a sinner, when he looks at someone who is in sin, who's in unbelief, and he calls them unto himself, they come. To, to take notice that unlike so many others, that, that, that where, where there's miracles, there's no miracles here. There, there's no indication of that Matthew is even listening to the teaching. I'm not to say that Matthew hasn't heard anything. I'm not saying that Matthew hasn't heard the rumors. I'm not saying that Matthew hasn't, hasn't maybe seen him walking. I'm not saying they may not have ever had a conversation. But what we, are see, what we do see here is that we have Christ who gazes at this man, sees his very nature, and he looks at him and he says, Matthew, follow me. Follow me. And by the very word of God, this man leaves everything behind. And he immediately follows Jesus and is now his disciple. This is the sovereign drawing of a sinner to salvation. This is the work of Christ that is going on that you do not see, dear, dear friends. That this is, that, this is what's happening in a person's life. That when you are sharing the gospel and they are just being as stubborn as they can possibly be and living in their sin, that you do not see that in their heart Christ may be calling them and working and drawing them unto Himself. And so as we see this, we are reminded of John chapter 10, verse 27, that my sheep hear my voice and I know them. And what does He say? And they what? They follow me. Oh, beloved, witness the power of God's grace. That when he calls a man, he comes. Does this not encourage you? We should never despair over the sinfulness and the unbelief of the souls of men and women. That somehow... That parent that you love, they have no hope. That somehow that sibling that you have, they have no hope. That that, that friend or that loved one or, or, or maybe those leaders, those world leaders, those leaders of the state and the nation, maybe those people who, you know, who, who have done really, really bad things that we know about and we look at them and we despair. There is absolutely no hope for them. You know what's interesting about the culture that we live in today? You don't even have to do anything for people to take away your hope of salvation. Your ancestors' sin can do that. They can look back in your genealogy and find sins and, 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 and trespasses and they look to you and they would say, there is no hope for you. We do not despair over the souls of men and women because we have a God whose call upon their life is so powerful and so great that it calls them out of their sin. Oh, beloved, the most sinful and the most wicked can be called out into repentance and into salvation. Is there someone that you are wishing to be saved this morning? Is there a mom or dad that's got a child this morning that your heart is broken and you just think 
I have given up all hope. To a spouse this morning, and you have despaired over your, your spouse, over your wife, over your husband, and you've just, I've given up all hope. Is there someone that you have just given up? Oh, beloved, be encouraged this morning and know that when God calls them, he can call them out of their sin. What great hope this gives to the Christian. Go and pray for your loved ones. Go and tell your loved ones of this God. Do not, do not despair, but rejoice. For as long as God remains on the throne, and that is eternity, and there is breath in their lungs, there is always hope of salvation. Amen? But I want you now to notice the response or the sinner's response. Look at verse 28. Consider Matthew's actions in these verses. He says, and he left everything behind and he got up and he began to follow him. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with him. Now, I, I love this because I think we see here the beautiful example of, of how men and women are to follow Christ. That when he calls us, and we preach the gospel, or when you share the gospel, that when you are telling people about Jesus and about you know, somebody's sin and how he, how he lived perfectly and died on the cross and rose from the grave and how they are to respond. We, we, we want to do that sinner's prayer, right? We wanna, if you'll just say this prayer and you just believe it, then, then, then you're right. Beloved, we don't see that in Scripture, but what we do see are these three things. There are three very practical things, very things that just exemplify, that just give us an example of what a man and woman is supposed to do when the gospel goes out and calls them into salvation. Notice three things here. I want you to see first that they are to leave their old life behind and follow Jesus. We can sum it up. This is just repentance. Notice that Matthew left everything behind. He got up and he began to follow him. Now, tax collecting was a very profitable business, mainly because you had to be sinful in order to be profitable. In order to be profitable, you had to be sinful. You had to be greedy. And so Matthew made the choice here to leave behind this franchise, this, this, this opportunity that he had to, to, to you know, that he, that he was, this whole future was set on this. And so he leaves it behind and he follows Christ. Now, you put this in context with the other individuals that Jesus called to follow. Peter, Andrew, John, James, follow me. Okay, if this thing doesn't work out, mom, dad, just watch my boats. I'll be back. No, no, no. You need to understand that when Matthew left, someone jumped in. He lost his investment. And he lost his opportunity. And not only that, no one in Rome would ever hire him again. You thought he was an outcast with the Jews? He'll be an outcast with the Gentiles, the Romans, all these. And so this is a great sacrifice. And you need to understand that this phrase, follow him, is in the imperfect tense, meaning that it is continual. It is ongoing, never stopping. And by all accounts, history has shown us that Matthew did this very thing. Jesus said, follow me always. Follow me to the very end of your life. And by history, we know that Matthew was a martyr that even in the very moment, in the last minutes of his life, 
under great distress and pain. He himself did not deny Christ, but followed Christ, even unto death. Matthew never stopped following Jesus. Beloved, this is the sinner's response. You leave behind your former life and you never return. You leave behind your former life and you never return. Now, in general, we're not called to leave our occupation and things like that, but sometimes we are. In this case, Matthew is called to leave that behind. But the main point is repentance, that he is to repent of his sins. He is to confess that sin, forsake that sin. And so he leaves behind the greed. He leaves behind that loving of money more than he loved God. And he had to leave behind sinful practices such as extorting people. And you know what else he had to leave behind? The practice of not worshiping God. The practice of not sacrificing unto the Lord. Can you imagine the first time that Matthew would have to sacrifice now that he would go? If, you know, he, maybe he'd been doing it, you know, but it would all counts. It seems that he probably wasn't. But can you imagine now, this time, going into the temple? Matthew had to leave it all behind and begin to follow Christ and forsake his sins. Now, beloved, I must deal with something here this morning. One, just because it's a pet peeve of mine, but I believe this text has been completely taken out of context and misunderstood. You see, people love this passage when they talk about the love of Jesus and, the, and oh, how Jesus ate with the sinners and Jesus ate with the tax collectors and Jesus, he just hung out with them. And all of you staunchy, fundamentalist, conservative people who just keep talking about repentance and sin, you need to be more like Jesus. I find it interesting that they never finish reading the passage. Amen? For what did Jesus say? I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners to repentance. This means that those tax collectors and sinners who came to eat at the table with Christ were called to repentance. Some may have, some may not. We don't know. But we know that one did. We know that Matthew was told to, forget, to forsake his sin and beloved, this means that you turn away from your sin, never to turn back. This doesn't mean you go to church for a few years and life is good and you walk the aisle, you say the prayer, you get baptized and, and, and you get in Sunday school and you serve a little bit here and you serve a little bit there. But when you get about, you know, 60-something, 70-something years old, 80-something years old, 90 years old, 100 years old, I've done enough. It's time to just, just lay low and just go on to heaven. No. We don't return back to the way it was. We press on to follow him forever. This is how we know that someone has responded correctly in the call of salvation. Jesus is calling these individuals to be transformed, to have a new life. They have turned from their sin. They do not continue in sin, nor do, we, nor do they celebrate their sin. 
And I believe that we are living in a time today where we want to just celebrate the love of God and celebrate sin. And we'll practice it. We'll be a part of it. So you've got to find that thin line of eating with sinners but, all, but not celebrating their sin. And that's very hard. But know this, that 1 Corinthians 13 in the love chapter, it tells us that love does not rejoice in evil. Oh, beloved, if Jesus was celebrating their sin, then, then he himself is not loving And so such is the response that you and I are to make, that we are to repent of our sin and leave behind our former sins and our former lives, and we are to follow him. Now, I know that I mentioned some pretty vile sins earlier. And so maybe you really thought you were off the hook, but you need to know this, that sin is sin. Matthew's sin was the sin of greed. Maybe your sin is the sin of pride. Maybe your sin is the sin of lust. Maybe your sin is the sin of anger. Maybe your sin is that you're just not being fulfilling the responsibility as a husband or a wife. Maybe your sin is that you're prejudiced or, or you are racist. Or maybe your sin is that you're just, not unkind, you're just unkind to people. You're just unkind. Maybe you have a foul mouth, foul language, whatever the case may be. We want to pinpoint the sins of the vilest people and say they need to turn from there. But Jesus does not make a distinction. He says turn from all of your sins. And so you are just as much in danger of hell to not turn from being the sin of unkindness, of greed and lust, and continuing in that sin as any of the vile ones that we mentioned earlier. Sin must be repented of. It must be forsaken. And you must follow Christ. This is the proper response that we know that someone has believed. But I would even point out, secondly, we see the joy of Matthew, that Matthew had this reception in honor of Jesus, of, his, of this honor of, his, of Jesus giving him this new life. He does not view Christianity in the way the world does. You know, the world says Christianity is such a killjoy. Can you imagine these friends? What are you doing, Levi? You are giving up the most profitable thing in the world. Could you imagine what you could have bought? Could you imagine what you could have owned? You could have retired early. And you could have coasted through life. You could have been wealthy beyond your dreams and had as much joy and happiness in there. What is wrong with you? This is, why would you do this? He says, let me show you why. Come to my house tonight, six o'clock, dinner's on me. Come to my house and I'll show you the reason why I'm leaving. A believer rejoices in leaving behind the old life. I sometimes wonder how many of us want to go back to it. I sometimes wonder if us Christians, if we look back at the things we used to do and just go, oh, if I could just go back one more time. Rather than, praise God, you got me out of that. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, nothing can happen to a man which ought to be uh, such an occasion of joy as his conversion is far more important event than being married or coming of age or being a nobleman or receiving a great fortune. It is the birth of an immortal soul, the rescue of a sinner from hell. It is the passage from life to death. It is being made a king and a priest forevermore. 
It is being adopted into the noblest and the richest of families, the family of God. Is that how you view your conversion, dear friend? Is that how you view the conversion of your brothers and sisters in Christ and the new converts? I have a question for you. Is that how you view the salvation, the conversion of the vilest sinner who comes to our church? You know it's going to happen one day. The most vilest of people are going to be saved and completely transformed by God and they're going to sit right next to you in that pew. And are you going to rejoice with them or find a new pew? Because your joy at the conversion of the vilest of sinners is how you respond to your own conversion. We praise God that he not only saved a wretch like me, but he saved wretches like all of us. And so I call on you, dear friend, that you would rejoice in the salvation of others, that you would rejoice in the baptism of souls that when they come, that you, listen, if there's a baptism happening, look, ain't no time to get sick. Come on. When there's a business meeting and, and we're going to have cake and punch and we're going to celebrate the new converts and we're going to celebrate the new member, that, that you would come and don't go, I don't I got to go to this. Dear friends, we've gained a new family member. Somebody got saved. And you're grumbling. You're grumbling. Because the service is 15 minutes longer because of the baptism. You've got to go to the business meeting. We have gained a brother. We have gained a sister. And they were in their sin. And God called them out. And we rejoiced. I'll stay all day, Lord, and I will rejoice. I will rejoice in the baptism of my new brother and sister in Christ. Oh, church, I would suggest that you and I, that this is something our church needs to do better at. But I would also suggest that our church must truly pray and seek to do, seek to ourselves to rejoice in the salvation of others. That when they come through those doors and when they join our church, that your fellowship and joy isn't just that they came to church. No, no, you, like Matthew, open up your home. And you have them in. You cook for them. You rejoice with them. You give them your phone number and your text. And you tell them they can call anytime they want. For the joy of a Christian does not fade. It doesn't fade with time. It increases. But thirdly, I want you to notice Matthew's desire for conversion. For this was his version of the evangelistic outreach. It wasn't a tent crusade. It wasn't a YC. He opened up the doors, his front doors of his house. He cooked a meal and he said, you come and eat at my house. That is the biblical gospel evangelistic outreach. 
And here's what's funny, is that we think that this is just the preacher's job, and this is just staff member's job. And yet, when you walk through these, the Gospels, what we find is, is Jesus ate at a lot of people's houses, and a lot of the things going on in those houses was evangelistic. And it was always people like Matthew and others. It was always the people in the pew who were the ones opening up their homes and bringing people in. Why? Why? I know it's inconvenient. You're a busy people. You've got things to do. But why do I want them in my home? Why do I want them? them to come because I desire that they be saved. J.C. Ryle said, there is no grace in a man who cares nothing about the salvation of his fellow men. Hear that again. There is no grace in the man who cares nothing about the salvation of his fellow men. In other words, you may not even be saved if you do not have a desire that moves you to evangelize. It just moves you to pray for other people to be saved. Which is exactly what we see in these verses. Who were the ones who grumbled? But the Pharisees. The Pharisees and scribes began grumbling at the disciples saying, Why do you eat and why do you drink with the tax collectors and sinners? Oh, beloved, this is what the unsaved men look like. They carry no desire. They carry no effort that the vilest of sinners would be saved. They carry no understanding of the mission of Christ. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. They do not labor to create more followers. They only cared about their own stations, the religious one. You see, unlike Matthew, they did not leave nor forsake their religious station. I fear that sometimes we are more like the Pharisees than Matthew. We just want to be separated from all of those sinners out there and leave them with no hope. Beloved, I ask you this morning, do you desire to introduce someone to Jesus? I'm not even asking if you've introduced somebody. I'm just asking you this morning, do you have a desire within your heart that burns to introduce someone to Jesus Christ? If it is no one, then you must examine your own life. For the soul which has been truly called of God will earnestly desire that others may experience the same calling and conversion. You want to know why? Because converted men and women do not wish to go to heaven alone. We don't don't want to be in heaven by ourselves. So who do you desire this morning to introduce to Jesus? Cook them a meal. Invite them over to your home. Pray for them. Share the gospel with them. Share your testimony with them. But oh, dear friend, bring them into your home as a gospel example of what a religious outreach is. This is, what a, this is in the gospels. This is what an evangelistic outreach is. Opening the home and bringing the sinners in that I may share a meal and tell them about the one who has saved me. Oh, may I encourage you this morning to strive to have the zeal of George Whitfield who said, God forbid that I should travel, any, travel with anybody a quarter of an hour without ever speaking of Christ to them. Beloved, the field is white with harvest. Start with those in your household, with your own children, and your own spouse, with your own family, and work your way out. You will be surprised of how many people you will truly reach for the Lord. As we close this morning, I want to share this with you. I want to remind you of the lyrics that we sang earlier, Forever Jesus. Can you imagine with me this morning, Matthew 
singing that hymn with us this morning. My hymn of praise shall be forever Jesus. My firm foundation in shifting sands. My strength and hope through many fears and failures. Notice this, the disappointments of the past. His constant love has held me fast. And so for all my days, I will sing my praise to the King. Forever, Jesus, though the storms will rage, don't miss this part, though the storms will rage, He, Jesus, is strong to save. How strong, Matthew? How strong is Jesus to save? He is so strong that He saved a sinner like me. He is forever. He is the King forever, Jesus. Oh, friends, bow with me this morning as we prepare for the invitation. If you would, I would ask this morning as you prepare your heart that you consider the truths that are declared today that Christ has come to seek out and save those who are lost. He has come to forgive your sins for no sin is too great for Him. And so in this time of invitation, would you rejoice and sing? If Christ has saved you, if He has called you out, may you rejoice and sing this morning. Consider the, consider the calling of what He's asking you to do. If you're in your unbelief, He is asking you to leave your sin. And I would, I would advise you, I would encourage you, I'd plead with you that you would forsake your sin this morning. Forsake your sin and follow Him. Confess it. Turn from it forever, never to return, and follow Christ. And to the church this morning, I would say, consider your evangelistic response. How we are to Always be rejoicing in the salvation of others and always desiring to introduce someone else to Christ. May it begin this morning, even in this time of invitation and prayer. Let's pray.